0: In episode 29 we began our scary adventure through Cumbria, a picture postcard perfect county. It's as spooky as it is beautiful, as you'll see for yourself if you head over to How haunted Pod on Instagram and take a look at the locations we dared to explore last week and those that we're about to encounter this time out. So tonight, join me as we continue our tour of Haunted Cumbria. Welcome to episode 30 of how haunted a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet earth i'm rob kirkup author paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of england allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within this week we continue our ghost trail of one of the most picturesque yet scary counties in england and ask once again how haunted is cumbria
1: Listen that discretion is advised, is
0: advised as each episode of How Haunted, Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, happenings bloody murder, and ghosts. So, so many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Last week we looked at ten creepy, scary, dark, and potentially dangerous locations across Cumbria. And this time out we look at ten more, as we conclude our paranormal adventure... Through this truly stunning county in the northwest of England. Levens Hall. Levens Hall began life as a simple peel tower built in 1350 by the de Redmond family to defend against the threat of attack from the Scots. With cattle buyers below ground level, and underhousing for the women and children to take shelter in times of trouble. The tower remained in the de Redmond family until the 1550s, when their successors, the Bellinghams, chose it as their main residence. In 1578, James Bellingham began work to build a comfortable family home around the tower. This work was completed in 1641, over 50 years after it began. This was also the year in which James Bellingham died. In 1694, Colonel James Graham added a fine staircase leading from the Great Hall, the brew House, and the East and South Wings. Graham had won the house in 1688 from his cousin, Allan Bellingham, a compulsive gambler on the turn of a card, the Ace of Hearts. Shortly after taking ownership of Levens Hall, Graham had water spouts added to the front of the hall, marked with hearts, and his initials and the initials of his wife. Colonel Graham was a close friend of King James II, and Graham filled the house with grand furniture including the superb Charles II dining chairs that remain to this day and many beautiful works of art. In the late 1690s he employed French garden designer Guillaume Beaumont to create the topiary gardens which are Levens Hall's most famous feature attracting thousands of visitors every year and they remain almost unchanged over 300 years later. With over 600 years of continued occupation it may come as no surprise that the Bagot family who live at Levens Hall today share their home with all manner of things that go bump in the night. The Grey Lady is regularly seen walking the ancient Taupierry Gardens after dark, and is believed to be the ghost of a pregnant gypsy woman who cast a curse upon Levens Hall at the beginning of the 18th century. It was a wild winter night, and the gypsy woman, weak, freezing and starving, approached Levins Hall begging for shelter. She approached the main entrance to the hall and was turned away, She was so weak that she collapsed and died where she lay in front of the hall, but before she breathed her last, she cursed the family, warning that no eldest son of the family shall inherit Leven's Hall until a white doe is born in the Hall's Deer Park and the waters of the River Kent freeze over. For almost 200 years the estate passed down the female line. That was until 1895 when the curse was finally broken. In this year A pale coloured form was born to one of the black norwegian deer that lives in the acres of parkland in the grounds of Levens Hall. And there was a particularly severe winter which saw the nearby river Kent freeze. The following year a son was born to the Bagot family named Alan Desmond. And in 1913 Sir Alan Bagot inherited Levens Hall from his father. Despite the curse being broken the sinister wraith of the Grey Lady is still the most commonly reported ghost. She is described as having her lank hair up in a bun, wearing a long purple grey dress, with the ragged hem hitched clear of her bare feet. As well as being seen in the gardens, she has also been seen at the bottom of the drive close to the river. In 1973 she was almost the cause of a near fatal accident, as she suddenly appeared in the middle of the road in front of a motorist, who had to slam his brakes on to avoid her. In recent years, she crossed the road in front of a cyclist, who fell off his bicycle trying to go around her. When he looked up to check that he had not caught the grey looking lady, she would vanished. Another well reported phantom is that of a small playful black dog. The origin of this friendly ghost is a mystery, but he is described as being small and woolly with bright friendly eyes. He enjoys playing on the staircase, confusing visitors by running around their feet as they climb the stairs, many tripping up trying to avoid standing on him as he appears so solid and real. That is until he vanishes suddenly. At other times people will open a door and the little dog will rush out to greet them wagging his tail. But when somebody attempts to stroke the dog, their hand passes straight through him. Another unidentified spirit at Levens Hall is that of the Pink Lady, a benign ghost who was first seen in 1973 when two separate groups of visitors clearly saw the figure of a woman standing on the staircase, wearing a long pink dress, apron and a mob cap similar to the style of an 18th century maid. Ever since, the Pink Lady, as she has become known, has been seen regularly on the staircase and walking along the hall. She appears solid and is said by witnesses to just suddenly dissolve. In the 1950s a priest called Father Stoner was making a visit to Levens Hall to visit an ill member of the Bagot family. He let himself in and as he passed the main hall he passed a man playing the harpsichord with a bright electric light burning above them. Not wanting to disturb the man, he continued past him and headed upstairs to comfort the family member. After twenty minutes, they had dozed off into a peaceful sleep, so he quietly made his way back downstairs where the harpsichord player was still there. Again, he didn't disturb the man, and he was about to leave when he heard voices from a nearby room. He knocked and entered to find the lady of the house, Mrs. Bagot, with a guest having a candlelit tea party. He made conversation and asked him passing why they were sitting in candlelight. He was told that there had been a power cut and all of the electricity was out. The priest was a little confused about this and explained that he would passed a man playing the harpsichord sitting under an electric light working perfectly well. The lady of the house assured the priest that this was not possible and she tried the electric light switch again to prove that the power had not been restored. She explained that the only member of the family who could play the harpsichord was her husband, who was away on business. The priest led her out into the hallway, but he found silence and darkness. The man had vanished. Mrs Bagot was now gravely concerned for the safety of her husband, as she believed every word the priest had said, and was now concerned that it may have been her husband's ghost, or some kind of warning that he was in danger. However, having no mobile phones in these days, she had no way of contacting him. Father Stoner had not met Mr Baggett before, so could not confirm that it was him he had seen playing the instrument. Thankfully, Mr Baggett returned home safely the next day, as did Father Stoner, and to his horror he immediately recognised Mr Baggett as the man he had seen so clearly the previous day. He even asked Mr Baggett to play the harpsichord, and the piece of music that he chose to play was the exact same piece that the priest had heard him play the day before. The present owners of Levens Hall experienced strange noises and ghostly apparitions. Mr Baggett's mother-in-law had her very own encounter while staying overnight in the hall, when she awoke in the middle of the night to bear witness to three apparitions stood at the foot of her bed. The figures were that of a man with a stick wearing a stovepipe hat, and a woman with a small child. Mr Baggett described his mother-in-law as a very forthright woman, and this is true as she simply asked the trio of spectral visitors What on earth are you doing here? Get out of my bedroom. At this, the three figures turned and walked into a wall. The figure of a young girl has been seen hiding among the trees in the topiary garden. She was first reported in 1992 during a paranormal investigation. On the same investigation there was lots of reported flashing of lights in the garden that could not be explained, a phenomenon that continues to this day. Back when I was researching Levens Hall for my book Ghostly Cumbria in 2009, I was fortunate enough to be able to track down a former paranormal investigator from the highly popular living TV series Most Haunted. The TV show investigated Levens Hall way back in 2002, and ghost hunter David Scanlon told me about his time on the TV programme investigating the ghosts of Levens Hall. He told me, I remember my time at Levens Hall very well indeed, it was my first time investigating with the Most Haunted team, but I had been investigating the paranormal independently since I was 11 years old and since 2001 with the Hampshire Ghost Club, a group that I formed to investigate claims of the paranormal. I was aware of the well-known stories associated with Levens Hall, but something that really intrigued me was a recent sighting by the owner's son. He had awoken in the night and opened his bedroom door to visit the toilet and was rather taken aback when he witnessed a black shrouded figure silently gliding down the corridor towards him. This young lad promptly closed his door and jumped back into bed and ignored the need for his bathroom break. I remember the night with Most Haunted being a mixture of random electromagnetic fluctuations, temperature differences and a general overall awareness of what might be. The most interesting occurrence during the investigation came at a time for me when the team had down tools for the night and decided to get some sleep. I carried on my investigations and I ventured around various parts of the hall on my own. At one time I was sat silently all on my own and became aware of a female presence. I know the listeners will immediately start by saying, not another bloody psychic, but I would like to point out that I'm quite a scientifically minded person, and I'm not in the least bit psychic, not as far as I'm aware. Regardless this presence came very close, and all of a sudden I just felt an overwhelming sensation of causing sadness to the family. Not on a nasty level, but on the level of an illness that toppled one strong personality. The feelings I had physically I could only liken to those of a stroke. I decided to leave the area in the hope that it would clear the presence with me but it didn't. I ventured out of the hall and the feeling just intensified. The feeling finally went when I returned to the hall and I came to rest in a small area no bigger than a box room just off the room where the family kept a copious amount of silverware. That's when the feeling finally left me and I felt I had dropped the woman off in an area in which she felt comfortable. I still can't explain the sensations or the occurrence. I spoke to Derek Akora, or spiritualist medium on the show and he told me that it was a form of possession and a way in which to convey what the spirit was feeling and trying to say to people. It has been a long time since I had this experience and this is the first time I have ever revealed it. I don't know why now, it just feels that now is the time that this experience should be firmly recorded so the event can be researched further and maybe help somebody else who has experienced something similar. Kirkstone Pass Inn The Kirkstone Pass Inn stands in a lonely windswept position 1489 feet above sea level, and is the highest occupied building in Cumbria and the third highest inn in England. The building dates back to 1496 when it was built as a private house, and it was restored in 1847 having fallen derelict, and it was opened as an inn called the Traveller's Rest. It was renamed the Kirkstone Pass Inn at the beginning of the 20th century. The site upon which the building stands was previously that of a monastery. The Kirkstone Pass Inn is named for the Kirkstone Pass upon the summit of which it is situated. It is very popular with tourists and walkers, and it provides breathtaking views over the Lakeland fells and the Brothers Water, a lake at the bottom of the pass. The A592 road runs through the pass and is the highest pass open to traffic in the Lake District. It links Ambleside to Patterdale in the Ullswater Valley. The pass rises steeply, climbing 1,300 feet in just three and a half miles with a gradient of one in four in places. It is known locally as the Struggle, a name dating back to when horse-drawn coaches would struggle with the incline requiring passengers to climb out of the coach and walk to the top on foot. The Lake Port William Wordsworth, who lived in the nearby village of Rydal, walked this pass many times. He described the pass most evocatively when in 1817 he wrote the Pass of Kirkstone, which includes the lines, When, through this heights inverted arch, Rome's earliest legion passed, They saw, adventurously impelled, And older eyes than theirs beheld, This block and yon, whose church-like frame, Gives to this savage pass its name, A spire and road, that loist to hide, Thy daring in a vapory borne, Not seldom may the hour return when thou shalt be my guide. The name of the pass is derived from a nearby stone called the Kirkstone. It is found on the left bank above the road as it descends from the summit close to the inn. The Old Norse word for a church is kirk, and the stone is roughly four feet high and resembles early steep roofed Norse churches. There are records going back hundreds of years of many people dying while attempting to traverse the Kirkstone Pass in adverse weather conditions. The weather in the Lake District is not to be underestimated as it can change from one extreme to the other in a matter of moments. The weather on the Kirkstone Pass can be particularly bad during the winter and in extremely snowy or icy conditions the pass is closed off by the police as it's simply too dangerous. It may well be that this tragic loss of life has contributed to the Kirkstone Pass's Inn's reputation as the most haunted public house in the Northwest. So paranormally active in fact, that in 2007, the BBC Countryfile magazine listed it as the fourth most haunted country pub in Britain. The most regularly reported spirit is that of Ruth Ray, one of the many victims of the treacherous mountain pass. She was a young mother living in the area in the early 18th century. She was at home caring for her newborn son, when she received news that her father was gravely ill at his home in Patterdale. It had been snowing that day but the skies were blue, so worried for her father she wrapped her baby up warm and she set off across the pass. Ruth was not wealthy and she had no way of traversing the pass other than to walk. To Ruth's horror, mist descended onto Kirkstone Pass, and this was followed by a blizzard. Ruth's husband feared for her safety, so headed out into the blizzard to try and bring her home safely. He tried to follow the same route but the weather was deteriorating further, and he realised that his own life was in danger. He would have perished on the pass had it not been for a sheepdog that led him back to the safety of a nearby farmhouse. The husband was eager to head back into the night, but he realised that he would surely die. He hoped and he prayed to God that his beloved wife and child had made it safely to her fathers before the blizzard had set in. The following morning he headed back out onto the pass. This time, accompanied by the farmer and the sheepdog, they found Ruth and his son close to the top of the pass. She was dead, and she was holding her son tightly in her arms. The man collapsed under the snowy ground, an outpouring of grief for the loss of the two most important people in his life his wife and his son, who was only a few weeks old. However, the farmer shouted to him that his son was still alive. It was a miracle, but sure enough, The tiny child was perfectly fine. In Ruth's final act before the blizzard claimed her life, she had removed her shawl and wrapped it around the baby before holding him close to her chest. She knew she stood no chance of surviving, but she hoped that she may be able to save her son. Tragically she died only a few feet from the summit, at which point she would have been able to find warmth and shelter in the building which is today the Kirkstone Pass Inn. The despair that Ruth must have felt, knowing that she was going to die, must have been incredible. And she has haunted the area around the inn ever since, especially in snowy conditions. Through the window of the inn people have seen the figure of a woman cradling a baby in her arms. Others have seen the dark figure of a woman appearing to be searching for something. Late at night people leaving the inn or spending the night there have heard a baby's cry carried on the wind across the pass. In the summer of 1993, a visitor took a photo of his family in the porch of the inn. Upon developing the film, he realised he would captured something impossible. Behind his smiling family stood a man who had not been present at the time the photo was taken. He was a tall male figure, wearing the attire of a 17th century coachman. The spirit has been seen several times since inside the inn, and is affectionately known as Neville. In the 19th century, The Kirkstone Pass Inn was one of the first coaching inns along the busy trade route to and from Scotland, and a young boy of ten years old, called Nettle, was the son of the inn's carriage master. Nettle loved to meet the travellers as they came through the pass, and he used to wait close to the summit for the sound of approaching wagons and horses coming up the steep, snake and road, but one day his enthusiasm cost him his life. He ran out into the road to greet the wagon, but it didn't slow down and it knocked him to the ground killing him. The wagon didn't stop at all and headed on past the inn. Nettle's ghost remains at the Kirkstone Pass Inn and has been blamed for the pranks which regularly befall the staff and the guests. Lights turn themselves off and on and doors that should be open are found to be locked. More unusual still are all of the chairs being stacked on top of tables during the night and pictures taken down from the walls and stacked neatly on the floor. Visions of coaches being pulled up the pass by teams of horses have been reported, and the sounds of horses clip-clopping past in the middle of the night, but when the witness looks out of the window for the source of the noise, there's nothing there. A malevolent entity does lurk within the inn, a phantom whose intentions are unknown, but it exudes evil. Belief in this thing is taken so seriously that talking about it within the pub is not allowed. One night after the pub had closed, two members of staff were counting the takings when they clearly heard footsteps on the floorboard above them. However, they were the only people in the building. Taking a dog with them, the two men headed upstairs, unaware of what they would encounter. When they reached the top of the staircase, the dog sat down, began to whimper and would go no further. The two men were extremely nervous, and each encouraged the other to go first. Hearts pounding in their chest, They opened the door of the first room and peered in scanning the room with their torches. There was no one there. They tentatively opened the second door, and again it was empty. They were extremely nervous now as whatever lay in wait for them must be in the third and final room as there was no other way out of the building. They burst in at the same time, just in time to see a black figure move swiftly across the room before vanishing into a wall. Neither men knew what it was, but both experienced the same feeling. That it was pure evil, and the most terrifying thing that either of them had ever seen. One local taxi driver won't enter the Kirkstone Pass Inn. He once had an experience so terrifying a number of years ago whilst inside the inn, that he won't talk about it, but he has vowed to never, ever go inside the Kirkstone Pass Inn so long as he should live. Behind the inn is a tree that was used in the 18th century to execute criminals. Dozens of men and women met their death at the end of a rope dangling from that tree. And because they were not allowed to be buried in consecrated ground, their bodies were thrown into the fells to decay and be feasted upon by insects and animals. One local who died in this manner was a former owner of the building. He was persecuted by the local villagers following the mysterious deaths of his twin baby sons. There was no evidence to support their belief that the father had any involvement in their sudden deaths, and he appeared to be genuinely devastated. However, the villagers decided that there was no doubt that he must have murdered them, and they decided to take the law into their own hands. They dragged the man to the hanging tree, and tightened a crudely constructed noose around his neck. As he dangled from the tree, he was crying huge tears of grief. Not for his own impending death, but for the loss of his sons, who he would not even had a chance to bury. Death followed swiftly and ever since, his spirit has been seen outside the Kirkstone Pass Inn, still mourning the death of his children for all eternity. Sadly, the Kirkstone Pass Inn was closed down in September 2022 by the owners Gail and John Jennings, but hopefully new owners will soon be found and the historic inn can reopen once more. Lake Windermere Windermere is England's largest natural freshwater lake covering an area of 5.69 miles and reaching a maximum depth of 67 metres. The lake is a ribbon lake, which means that it is long and narrow, and Windermere is over 11 miles long and just under a mile wide at the lake's widest point. The lake also has 18 islands, the largest of which is the privately owned 40 acre Bell Island. Windermere was formed over 13,000 years ago during the last ice age. It was formed by a glacier digging through a glacial trough through a vein of soft rock. Then as the glaciers melted the trough filled with the water which formed Lake Windermere. Windermere is undoubtedly one of the country's most popular locations for family breaks and holiday homes as every year thousands flock to the area to enjoy the natural beauty that Windermere has to offer. This has been the case since the Kendall and Windermere Railway first built a line to the area in 1847. The origin of the name Windermere is believed to originate from Vinadier's Lake, from the old Norse name Vinadier, and Mir meaning lake. It was known by the name Wynandmere until the mid-19th century. Far from the fun and laughter of the glorious summer days enjoyed by holidaymakers at the lakeside are the continued reports of strange, howling cries coming from Windermere and the surrounding area after dark. These happenings date back over a hundred years. The earliest recorded occurrence coming in 1895. This year saw a particularly harsh winter and the entire lake froze over. Locals said that every night for over a week they had loud continuous moaning noises and cries coming from beneath the frozen surface. Some people passed it off as the sound of cracking ice being carried on the wind. But some believed it to be the tragic ghosts of 47 wedding guests who on the 19th of October 1635 were on board a ferry on the lake following the ceremony, and the overladen vessel sank beneath them. Every single passenger drowned. A more common belief amongst locals is that it could be the Phantom Crier of Clave, the spirit of a monk from Furness Abbey who is said to make himself heard by crying out over the waters of Windermere. The legend of the Crier of Clave. Tells how a monk fell in love with one of the women who came to Furness Abbey in need of help. However, the love he felt for her was not returned, and she rejected him. Heartbroken, he made his way out to Windermere and to Claif Heights, a wooden area on the western shore of the lake. He cried out into the night sky, a wild outpouring of grief, and he fell to the ground dead, having lost the will to live. One night, a local ferryman heard the cries across the lake and mistakenly thought it was somebody calling out for his service. When he returned without a passenger he was visibly shaken, he was white as a sheet, his eyes were wide in their sockets and he was unable to speak. He took to his bed and died within days, having never been able to tell of what he saw that night. Following this it was not possible to get a ferry across Windermere after dusk as the other ferrymen were terrified of coming face to face with the crier. The cries continued night after night. And a priest was called in to exorcise the terrible phantom. And although the terrifying cries of the crier ceased, the area of Clay Heights continued to have an uneasy atmosphere. On more than one occasion, packs of foxhounds, having been in full cry during a hunt, would stop dead in their tracks when near in Clay Heights, and they would whimper until being led away, unwilling to continue the hunt. There are also a number of spectral animals linked with Windermere. There have been many sightings since the 1500's of a phantom white horse, which witnesses have seen glide across the surface of the lake from shore to shore. Legend has it that anybody who witnesses the white horse will suffer a death in their family shortly afterwards. Another mythical beast linked with Windermere is the Tizzy Wizzy. The first sighting of the creature is attributed to a boatman at Bowness, who used to regale tourists in the early 1900's with stories of his encounters with the strange water-loving creature, who had the body of a hedgehog, the tail of a squirrel, and a pair of wings similar to that of a bee. Although this sounds like a fanciful tale made up to entertain children, regular sightings of tizzy-wizzies have continued, with claimed encounters as recently as 2008. On the 23rd of July 2006, Lake Windermere hit the headlines in newspapers nationwide, when university lecturer Steve Burnip and his wife Eileen were horrified to see what they could only describe as a Loch Ness type monster in the north end of the lake swimming close to the shore. At the time Mr Burnip told the Yorkshire Post, I was on holiday at Dower House at Ray Castle. It was the first Sunday of a week long holiday around lunchtime. I was walking along the lake with my wife and two friends and we'd walked up to Watt Barrow Point which juts out into the lake about 40 feet. We were stood chatting and I literally saw it, similar to the classic three lumps that you get in the Loch Ness pictures. I could see a head with swirling water and then a grey lump, more swirling water, and then another grey lump. But the most remarkable thing is that it was really moving. My jaw just dropped open, and I said, look at that. My wife also saw it, but it very quickly moved up the lake. I estimated it to be at least 30 foot long. I wouldn't believe anybody else if they told me, but I saw it, and I know what I saw. In March 2007, the lake monster of Windermere was spotted again, This time by photographer Lyndon Adams who christened the beast Bo Nessie. He was walking in the area with his wife when they spotted it. It just came out of the blue said Mr Adams. The water was incredibly peaceful and then this huge thing appeared, diving and thrashing around. It appeared to be about 50 feet long when I compared it to the nearby boats. I snatched the binoculars from my wife and gasped when I got a better look. I could see this dark huge thing moving in the water, it had a head like a Labrador dog only much, much bigger. In July 2009, Thomas Noblett was swimming in the lake when he was suddenly swamped by a three foot wave. Mr Noblett was training daily on the lake for a channel swim, and he had never entertained the idea that the lake monster might actually exist, but he was at a loss to explain the sudden bow wave. He was swimming at 7am with a swimming trainer, who was in a boat alongside him, and they were the only people on the lake. He said, We had gotten up early and Windermere was crystal clear. The lake was totally empty apart from us, and all I could hear was the slapping of my arm against the water. All of a sudden this wave just hit us. My trainer had asked where the hell that wave had came from, and it made the boat rock from side to side. It was like a big bow wave, a three foot swell at least. There were two as if a speedboat had sped past, but there were no boats on the lake. In 2009, I spoke to John Downs, the director of the center, for Fortean Zoology, and professional monster hunter. I spoke with him about the bone Nessie, and he told me of several other eyewitnesses who had contacted him with reports of encountering the Windermere monster following Mr Burnip's report, which brought the creature to the media's attention. He told me, An incident was reported by a Mr and Mrs Gaskell, who had seen the creature while boating on the lake in July 2006. The weather was dry and fine, with little breeze and the surface water was warm and calm, They have, on many occasions, seen fish jumping and surfacing in the lake. But on this particular day, they were travelling at a speed of around four knots, near the yellow six miles an hour marker at the entrance to the Ambleside Basin at the north end of the lake. When they both saw a disturbance around twenty yards ahead of them, Mr Gaskell told me that they had seen something very large surfacing and diving again, which looked like a seal or a dolphin without the fin, it was leaving a large wake and ripples. They did not see it again that day. Or anything similar since. Over the next month I received six further eyewitness accounts. Interestingly one was from the late 1950s and another was from the early 1980s. Moresby Hall. Moresby Hall is a former manor house and hotel in Parton on the Cumbrian coast near Whitehaven, overlooking the Cumbrian fells and just to the north of the village of Moresby. The hall was constructed during the 12th century, possibly as early as 1150. The adjacent St Bridget's church was built between 1822 and 1823 on the site of a Roman fort named Gabra The earth banks of the fort can still be seen today. The wealthy Moresby family owned the estate for centuries during medieval times and had contacts with English royalty. Christopher de Moresby fought in the Battle of Agincourt and was knighted by King Henry V and Anne, his great granddaughter, who was the sole heiress of the estate, saw her fiancé St Francis Weston executed by King Henry VIII, as he was accused of high treason and adultery, with Queen Anne Boleyn, the King's second wife. Later Moresby Hall was owned by the Fletcher family for around 250 years, and during the 17th century they made a number of significant changes to the hall. During the 18th century the house was owned by several different people, after Thomas Fletcher died childless. It fell into disrepair and was used as a farmhouse. However in 1910 it was restored and it was used as a small manor house for 45 years. It was then used by high duty alloys as an office until the late 1990s. Moresby Hall is a Grade 1 listed building and English heritage have described the old house as being one of the most important buildings in Cumbria. Today it is a five-star award-winning country guesthouse but anyone hoping to experience a good night's sleep will have to hope that they don't encounter any of the spirits believed to remain in the hall today. After skeletons were discovered under the floorboards and in the chimney of the hall, the ghost of what appears to be a cavalier has been seen throughout Moresby Hall. A dark shadowy figure has been witnessed, always sitting in the same seat, and the crying and wailing of children has been heard in the dead of night. In the early 2000s the owner of the hall was quoted as saying that she was cleaning, when through a glass door she saw a figure sitting in the next room. Knowing that there was nobody in the building at the time except for her, she quickly opened the door, but there was no one there. She closed the door and could no longer see the figure through the glass. She said the figure appeared to be that of a cavalier, and she must have seen a ghost. There was a legend dating back many years that there was a lost fortune buried somewhere in the hall or in its grounds. Another myth is that once a year a fairy fountain appears in the grounds of the hall and produces a lake upon which a single magical swan swims. The churchyard of St Bridget's Church is rumoured to have a tunnel that runs beneath it and a white lady, some say it's Anne de Moresby, walks the route of the tunnel but above ground. Wastwater In the Wasdale Valley of Cumbria is Wastwater a dark deep and very mysterious lake. It is an example of a glacial over-deepened valley. It is 3 miles long, half a mile wide and around 260 feet deep. Wastwater was voted Britain's favourite view in 2007 by viewers of TV channel ITV. It is a favourite with photographers. It's almost impossible to take a bad photograph of Wastwater and you can see photos taken by me over on the Instagram right now. It's unusual for a day to go by without a gaggle of keen photographers arriving at the lake a couple of hours before dusk and wait to capture the perfect shot. The lake is surrounded by the mountains of Red Pike, Kirkfell, Great Gable and Scarfell Pike. The water is cold and home to trout and the ancient Arctic char which have survived since the Ice Age. Reports of a monster residing in the murky depths of Wastwater first appeared in the early 1960s when water pipes were placed into the lake for the nuclear plant cooling system at what is now Sellafield Nuclear Power Station. Word began to spread in the area from workers of the project who had seen a long dark, something, swimming in the depths of the lake, moving like a fish, but much, much larger, some claiming it to be several meters in length. The lake has become popular with divers, and stories of a monster living at Wastwater have refused to go away. One witness told Diver magazine in December 2002 of his encounter with the creature. He said, Anyone who has ever dived England's deepest lake, the eerie Wastwater in West Cumbria, knows that there is something very large and strange down there. I saw it move off into the depths, way below me, when I was 36 metres deep in wonderfully clear water in the early 1980s. Skeptics would say I was full of narcosis, I say I saw something the size and shape of a giraffe's head off into the deep. When you stop laughing consider this fact. There are fish in wasp left behind by the retreat of the last ice age. What's not to say that something higher up in the food chain was left behind with them? In the early 1980s a visitor at a wastewater sensitive to spirit described the lake as being filled with the dead and explained that they could feel the hollow eyes of the dead staring up towards the surface. In 1984 a body was discovered in the lake by a diver called Neil Pritt. It was the remains of Margaret Hogg. Margaret's husband Peter was arrested and he confessed to her murder. Margaret had been having an affair and Peter strangled and killed her in October 1976. He wrapped her lifeless body in a carpet and tied it to a block of concrete before dumping it in the lake. The body was undiscovered for almost 8 years, and as a result it had not decomposed, but due to the lack of oxygen in the water, it had been preserved and was almost wax like. It is believed that there may be many more bodies undiscovered at the bottom of Wastwater. Water. The police are restricted diving to a maximum of 50 metres, and the lake is 79 metres deep. Margaret's body was discovered at a depth of 38 metres on a ledge only a few centimetres away from a drop, which would have seen her body reach the bottom of the lake. And possibly never be discovered visitors to wastwater in search for the beast that lurks beneath the depths may want to visit nearby wasdale corpse road wasdale had no church early in its history meaning the dead had to be transported over the fells to eskdale for interment leading to this route becoming known as the corpse road this road is said to be haunted by the spectral horse harry and the body of a woman her son had died, and whilst his body was being carried over from Corpse Road on a misty day, the horse carrying his body bouldered, and the body was lost. His mother was heartbroken knowing that her son's tiny body would never be laid to rest, and she died shortly afterwards. Tragically, her son's body was found shortly after she passed away, and he was given a full Christian burial. As the mother's body was being taken over the fells to Eskdale, a terrible snowstorm descended, and the horse was lost in the blizzard. Her body was never found. It is said that she haunts the Wasdale Corpse Road to this day. She is unable to rest due to the torment she feels, as she believes her son was never given a proper burial, and neither was she. Gosforth Hall Hotel Building of Gosforth Hall commenced in 1658, and it was built for Robert and Isabel Copley. The Copleys were very careful with their money, and to greatly reduce building costs, they took timbers from the hull of a shipwreck from the Irish Sea, with which to beam the upper floors. Another example of their money saving came in 1665, when Robert Copley refused to pay the herald's fee for their family's coats of arms. Instead, he designed his own, which is seen today in the bar of the hotel. The building today is a popular hotel, and it remains almost entirely the same as the original structure, which was built over 350 years ago with the exception of a wing which was destroyed by fire. From the moment you step foot through the doorway, the low doorways and uneven floors exude the age of Gosforth Hall Hotel, as does the original solid stone spiral staircase, the steps of which are worn from centuries of use. The lounge, which was originally the kitchen, can lay claim to containing the wider sandstone hearth in Britain. The staircase appears to be a focal point for Gosforth Hall Hotel's paranormal activity as several members of staff and a number of visitors have reported hearing a baby crying on the stairs. When this is investigated there is nothing there and the crying stops as suddenly as it begun. There have also been reports of a foul smell on the staircase, which seems to last for up to half an hour at a time. Drainage experts have been called and the location of the smell cannot be identified. However, the smell does not build up, it appears in an instant and vanishes just as quickly. The beer cellar is across a small yard from the hotel and it's always locked, however there have been instances of gas taps turning themselves off inexplicably. The hotel has got a unique haunting in the form of a haunted rocking chair. It rocks itself backwards and forwards 20-30 to 30 times and suddenly stops. Curious members of staff have tried to push the chair to see if the occurrence is as a result of an uneven floor, but the chair rocks 3-4 or four times before stopping. Room 11 includes a priest's hall, which leads to the fireplace in the bar. In the 17th century, it was illegal to be a Catholic, and Catholic martyrs were killed by the crown due to their faith. Robert and Isabel were devout Catholics and risked their own lives to give shelter to Catholic priests to help them escape persecution. Visitors to the room have seen a figure, which has been described as resembling a friar or a monk, sitting by the entrance to the priest's hall. Guest to Room 11 have also seen a strange pale face staring through the window. The bar is another paranormal hotspot, with staff members and guests witnessing glasses and tankards being thrown from the bar. There have also been sightings of an old man appearing to glide through the bar room. It is believed this may be the spirit of Robert Copley, unable to leave the building that he loved so much in life. The timbers of the upper floor are said to groan with anguish of the seamen who clung to them as they died in the icy waters. Next to the hotel is the Church of St. Mary's, which contains a wealth of early Christian relics. The church has been rebuilt several times, and there is evidence of a church here as far back as the early 9th century. The church is famed for the Gosforth Cross, a 14 foot tall slender Viking cross dating from around the year 900. It depicts a mixture of North and Christian imagery. Originally, it is thought that there were four such crosses within the churchyard, with two being destroyed completely, And the third being broken up and turned into a sundial in the 18th century. There are two hogback gravestones within the churchyard known as the saint stone and the warrior stone which are said to be the original gravestones of an early saint and a viking warrior. It is possible that the spirit of a viking warrior has been unable to rest in peace as locals passing the church on clear moonlit nights have seen a dark figure moving silently between the gravestones. With some witnesses claiming that the figure is clutching an object in his hand which resembles a long sword glinting in the moonlight. Hardnot Roman Fort Hardnot Fort was known by the Romans by the name Mediobogdum and was one of the loneliest outposts of the Roman Empire. It was built between 120 AD and 138 AD during the reign of Emperor Hadrian, and it is positioned on a spectacular site overlooking one of the steepest roads in the UK. The drive up the steep narrow winding road is not for the faint of heart, but alongside the incredible scenery, this adds up to the incredible experience at its not Roman fort. The fort was occupied initially only briefly, before being abandoned during an advance into Scotland during the middle of the 2nd century. The fort was reoccupied in the late 2nd century, and was in use until the end of the 4th century. And the garrison was a detachment of 500 men from the Dalmatian coast, infantry soldiers from Croatia, Bosnia Herzegovina and Montenegro. The Romans built a road over the pass in the 2nd century and called the road the 10th highway. It reaches a height of 1,289 feet at the summit of Hardnock Pass. The road fell into disrepair when the Romans left England at the early part of the 5th century although it remained a popular route for pack horses in the centuries that followed. Tragically, the ancient Roman road was completely destroyed during the Second World War, when the Ministry of Defence used the area for tank training. A decision was made to rebuild the road using tarmac, however the current road was not built on the exact route of the Roman road it replaced. The fort is one of the best preserved Roman remains in Cumbria. The fort is 370 feet square and covers an area of around three acres. The stone-fronted rampart has been partially rebuilt from stone reused from the area with a slate course distinguishing the original stonework from the rebuilt stones. The rampart wall is in the region of 12 feet thick. In each corner of the fort are the foundations of the towers that stood in each corner and gateways on all four sides. Within the walls of the fort, granaries, soldiers barracks, the commander's house and the Headquarters buildings or Principia have all been excavated and the surviving stonework prepared. Outside of the four walls is the bathhouse, and this consists of three adjoining rooms, the cold room or frigidarium, the warm room or tepidarium, and the hot room or lacoricum. Higher up in the hill is a large parade ground, evidence of the strict military discipline that the garrison lived under. The ground has been levelled, and on its west side is a ramp leading up to a viewing platform for the officer commanding the military exercises. The parade ground is considered to be the finest surviving example in the Western Empire. The remote location of the fort, with dark crags above and below, lends an eerie atmosphere to Hardnot Fort that very few ruins can match. In more recent years Hardnot Roman Fort has been home to some unusual paranormal activity, including whispering in visitors ears, dark shadows, strange sounds. In 2003, on a glorious summer's day, over a dozen witnesses saw a strange swirling mist slowly rise from the ruined fort before moving swiftly in the direction of the commander's house, and then vanishing as suddenly as it appeared. On the 8th of May 2007, a couple were in the ruined fort alone when they heard the sound of marching boots on a hard surface, even though the area is covered in grass. The footsteps lasted around 30 seconds before fading away. There is also an old legend linking the fort to the fairies of Cumbria. This dates back to at least 1607 when William Camden wrote of the link between Hardnot and the fairies in his book called Britannia. Cartmel Priory Gatehouse William Marshall, Lord of Cartmel and later Earl of Pembroke, founded Cartmel Priory in 1189 for a community of Augustan canons, with the building being completed in 1233. In around 1340, an outer wall was built for the priory and the gatehouse was also added. The gatehouse was built to fortify the main entrance following raids on the area in 1315 and 1322 by the Scottish led by King Robert the Bruce. In 1536, the priory was closed by King Henry VIII during the dissolution of the monasteries. Large sections of the priory buildings were sold and others were destroyed. Only the south aisle of the priory Which would later become the parish church and the gatehouse survived. It is believed that the gatehouse was spared because the great room was used as a manor court for the priors, dealing with disputes over land in the area owned by the priory. It was during this period that the gatehouse was also used as a prison. The gatehouse has had many uses in the centuries that followed. Between 1624 and 1790 it functioned as the local grammar school and during this time, an adjoining cottage was built for the schoolmaster. Names of some of the children that attended school here can still be seen in the great room, etched into the stone wall. During the 19th century, the gatehouse and the adjoining cottages were used to house village shops. In the early 20th century, the gatehouse was opened as a small local museum, used for exhibitions and meetings. In 1946 the Pearson family who had earlier restored the gatehouse gave the building to the National Trust to ensure that it was preserved for future generations. They also offered to sell the cottage to the National Trust and the cottage was purchased for £300. In the 1980s the great room was used as an art gallery. Today the gatehouse and the adjoining cottage are let out to tenants as accommodation. But the National Trust are keen to ensure that the public are still able to visit this historic building so there is an agreement in place with the tenants that the great room will be open to the public for six afternoons every year. In the area of the gatehouse a man in a tall hat has been seen. His identity is unknown but he disappears if he's spoken to. Before the railways were invented crossing the sands of Morgan Bay was a perilous journey so the monks from Cartmel Priory acted as guides to pass in horse-drawn carriages. Many people didn't have the money for a horse and carriage, or the assistance of a guide, so would gamble with their lives and attempt to walk across the bay unaided, hopeful of dodging the tide and the quicksands, both of which could kill someone on foot in minutes, and would also engulf a horse and carriage within 20 minutes. Many, many people drowned, their bodies discovered by the monks who would drag them to Cartmel Priory where they would be buried. Countless others were buried alive, sucked beneath the sand and never discovered. Figures have been seen moving across the sand at Morgan Bay ever since, believed to be the spirits of those who lost their lives here. Other figures are described as being hooded, perhaps the spirits of the monks who dedicated their lives to ensuring the safety of others. There is a tragic legend associated with nearby Cartmel Fell. On two farms in Cartmel lived families who were connected by marriage. The husband to be was a charcoal burner and one fateful day as he sat on a stone outside of his hut he was struck by lightning and killed instantly. After his funeral Kitty, his heartbroken fiancee, went to his hut and would never leave it again. She sat day and night calling out her lover's name. Her family tried to persuade her to come home but she refused so they cared for her by bringing food and blankets. Almost a year after Kitty's lover had died, some men brought her food, and when they called her name and she did not respond, they entered the hut and found her dead. The hut has long since been destroyed, but people on Cartmel Fell have seen a ghostly figure of a young woman sat upon a stone. Others have heard a sad woman's voice carried on the breeze. Greythwaite Hall, Greythwaite Hall was built in 1899 by William Martello Grey as the family home on a tranquil spot atop a hill with a wonderful view of Morecambe Bay. In 1937 it was converted into a family run hotel. It has maintained its period charm and guests can enjoy 10 acres of award winning landscaped gardens and woodland. Greythwaite Hall is a five times Cumbria in Bloom Best Hotel winner. Despite the building being relatively modern and lacking the death and horror more commonly associated with haunting, Greythwaite Hall has recently come to prominence with a spate of inexplicable activity and the building has an almost sinister atmosphere. Night porters have expressed the fear that they feel when walking the ground floor corridor in the dead of night, with the constant feeling of someone or something watching them. The sound of running footsteps has been heard in the corridor in daylight hours. Puzzled guests in the corridor alone at the time have reported hearing the footsteps moving quickly behind them. Assuming it to be another guest in hurry, they've moved to one side, but when they've looked over their shoulder, to their horror, there's nobody there. Yet the disembodied footsteps appear to run straight by them. The breakfast room was once a hive of unusual activity. Strange moaning noises, scraping sounds and items being moved around. However, when a painting that was hung in the room was moved to another part of the hotel, the activity stopped. It is said that a previous owner detested the painting, and was behind the mischievous happenings. It appears that something evil may remain in the breakfast room, however, as a paranormal group visited the hall in 2010 during the day, and one member of the team felt as if somebody was strangling them. They were so shaken by this that they fled, and vowed to never return. Furnace Abbey Furness Abbey is situated in the lush wooded vale in the valley of Deadly Nightshade between Dalton and Furness and Barrow and Furness. In 1124, Stephen, Count of Boulogne and later King of England, founded an abbey near Preston in Lancashire for the Order of Savigny, an order of monks which was established in Normandy. Three years later, they moved north to Furness, and Furness Abbey was built entirely of local sandstone. In 1147, Despite the resistance of the then abbot, Peter of York, the abbey became a Cistercian monastery. In the decades that followed, the Cistercians enlarged and rebuilt the original church. It was given a generous endowment, and over the years the wealth and power grew, and it owned 55,000 acres of land, including most of southern Cumbria, as well as land in Ireland and the Isle of Man. One of the kings of man, Reginald I, was buried at Furness Abbey. By the 16th century, Furness Abbey was one of the richest Cistercian monasteries in England, second only to Fountains Abbey. The Abbey suffered many raids by the Scottish, and the early 12th century was a particularly turbulent time. It was attacked in 1316, and then again in 1322, when the low Furness energy was the target of raiding parties from Scotland. The Abbey itself managed to buy itself its protection, but the surrounding countryside and settlements were still sacked and pillaged. As a response to this raid, Peel Castle was built nearby. On the 9th of April 1537, Furness Abbey was disestablished at the command of Henry VIII during the dissolution of the monasteries. Furness was one of the first large abbeys to be dissolved, partially due to some of the monks at Furness becoming involved in the Pilgrimage of Grace, a rebellion which began in York in 1536 and the fact that Furness had openly questioned Henry VIII's declaration of supremacy over the church. The deed of surrender was signed in the chapter house by Roger Peel, the last abbot. Following the dissolution of Furness Abbey, it was stripped of its treasures and anything of worth including the lead from its roof and much of its stonework, leaving the ruin that remains today. Furness Abbey today is owned by English Heritage and visitors can see the remains of the east end and west tower of the church the ornately decorated chapter house and the cloister buildings. The spirit of a monk has been seen walking towards the gatehouse before vanishing into a wall. A ghostly monk has also been seen climbing one of the staircases within the abbey. It is unknown if this is the same spirit. There is the ghost of a white lady. This tragic shade is believed to be of a squire's daughter who met her lover in secret at the ruined abbey in the years following the dissolution. One day her partner took a journey which led him out to sea, and he never returned. It is said that she went back to the Abbey every day until her death to take in the sight she and her partner once loved. The track they used to walk along hand in hand is still known as My Lady's Walk. The best known and most terrifying of Furness Abbey's ghosts is that of a headless monk on horseback who rides underneath the sandstone arch near the Abbey tavern. The death of this individual is linked to the invasion of the Scots, in 1316 Thank you so much for joining me for this very special episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at @HowHauntedPods or over on Instagram at @HowHauntedPods, where you will see photos galore relating to our ghost trail of Cumbria. If you want to get in touch You can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. This episode's coming soon. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and you'll hear the audio as it happens. There's seven episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you want to find a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? You can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash how haunted All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in this podcast episode description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, we're headed to a dramatic 12th century ruined castle that during its useful life was constantly at risk of being raided during the turbulent times of the Anglo-Scottish border wars. Since 1650 the castle has been left empty and abandoned, it decayed and stone was taken to be used in nearby buildings and what remained was eventually buried beneath 6 feet of soil. Today the remote ruin has seen a lot of strange occurrences reported, such as dark shadowy figures moving swiftly around the barely standing stonework. Footsteps are heard walking on floorboards above visitors heads, even though there's no longer floorboards there. What would happen when I spent some time there after dark? Let's find out together next week when we head into Northumberland and visit the ruin of Edlinham Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe and join me next time when we will once again ask the question How haunted?